there. I'm your friend Bev, host of Stop Psychoanalyzing Me, a podcast about mental health. I interview experts and ask questions about mental disorders that all of us might be curious about. Come join me. Dr. Naomi Murphy is a consultant, clinical, and forensic psychologist. She is currently clinical director of a specialist unit in a high-secure English prison where she was responsible for devising a treatment program for men identified as untreatable psychopaths. This program is now into its 18th year of successfully treating this population. Dr. Murphy's main treatment focus has been working with people with extensive histories of trauma, many of whom have also committed acts of extreme physical or sexual violence. Dr. Murphy, I am so excited to have you on the show. You're our first international guest. Thanks so much for inviting me on, Bev. Really nice to have this opportunity. I'm really interested in getting to know a little bit more about you before we jump into today's topic. And so I'm wondering if you could tell me a bit about your career pathway. So how did you wind up working in a high secure prison? Sure. Well, after I graduated, I, I suppose the subjects I was always interested in when I did my degree were the subjects around abnormal psychology. And after I graduated, I got a job working in a young offenders uh, institute where I was tasked with setting up a psychology department. I was only 22. I felt I was totally being let loose on, on people. And I suppose it was quite obvious talking to the, the guys there that a lot of their issues stemmed from kind of like early childhood relationships. And I really didn't feel I was um, equipped to um, help them address those issues. So I went and applied for clinical psychology training and trained as a clinical psychologist. And after I completed my doctorate, worked in a, med- a medium secure unit with people who'd offended, but who had um, serious mental health problems and then subsequently moved from there to a community forensic team. Also helped set up the first mental health inreach team into a prison in Leeds. So that was the aim of that project was to divert mentally disordered offenders from custody into hospitals. And then 17 years ago, I was recruited to develop a treatment programme for a population who were described as untreatable psychopaths, uh, which is in a high secure prison. And I've been in that post since 2003. Wow. So quite an illustrious and varied career. So let me get this straight. It sounds like at age 22, you were tasked to develop programming for a prison or or what exactly was that about? Well myself and a, a colleague who was a similar age we had held split posts that were in an adult prison but next door was a young offenders institution and our boss asked us to go and start a psychology department then and neither of us had any experience of working with, a, with prisoners before then. Uh, we both had had kind of like very short bits of clinical work as assistant psychologists in the health service and then we had had to go and start this department and I really felt very under-equipped for it. You know, I was writing, doing risk assessments on life sentence prisoners with no training whatsoever. Um, it really did feel like just being let loose. So I actually only stayed in the post 
for about nine months and then I'd started clinical psychology training in the autumn of, of that year because I knew that I needed training as a therapist, training in attachments and understanding how children develop and what can go wrong uh, when they don't have the optimum experience during childhood and for me that was definitely the right the right kind of like pathway to pursue. Wow okay so yeah it sounds like you were given this really tough job you sought out extra training in clinical psychology and then you've been fortunate to be working in this sort of hybrid forensic clinical position ever since. Yes, that's right. So I'm so my first kind of official training was as a clinical psychologist, and in those days, that was quite you know that was twenty four years ago. You could become a forensic psychologist via supervised practice as well. So I had a supervisor who was a forensic psychologist, and that enabled me to be qualified, duly qualified. Wow. Okay. So, what is the difference between a forensic psychologist and a clinical psychologist? I'm not sure I quite understand. The difference between the two? No, and it's a really good question. And I think even in psychology, there's quite a lot of confusion about who who does what and what what people's expertise is in. And obviously, there is a lot of overlap because the two branches of psychology, the individuals might pursue extra training. So, primarily, clinical psychologists are focus very much on the individual patient as their priority or possibly a group or a family but the patient or patient group is the priority. Typically clinical psychologists are trained in therapy and a key part of their training is also gaining experience of teamwork and also to complete doctorate level research. They're not necessarily trained in risk assessment so far as it pertains to offending. Risk assessment would generally be the threshold would be much, much lower. Um, so you'd be talking about someone's compliance with medication or something, perhaps, or self-harm. When you say risk assessment, what, what does that mean? In clinical psychology, it tends to be about what risk is there to their mental health deteriorating? Could the person pose a pose a risk of self-harm or suicide? But when you start working within a forensic sphere, you're talking about possibly also the risk to other people at the same time. And clinical psychologists do work with people at times that can pose a risk to others, but that's not the bulk of, of the work that you would do as a clinical psychologist, whereas a forensic psychologist, the vast majority of people that you'd be working with would be people who could pose a danger to other people. So the training, the risk assessment training tends to be much more extensive. They tend to be familiar with a, a broader array of tools that would include assessment of recidivism. And what does recidivism mean? <laughs> Sorry, reoffending. So committing another offence. Mainly forensic psychologists, I would say, work with people who've committed serious offences. But I think, you know, there, there, there can be this tussle. If somebody's, I remember when I worked in a community forensic team, that if somebody had, compl- uh, you know, taken a car without consent or shoplifted, there was a tendency for the for the community adult mental health teams to want to put that person into forensic services, even though they didn't really need that specialist level of expertise. And I suppose the second part of the question that you asked about was, you know, what's a, what's a forensic psychologist? And I suppose their main area of work relates to risk assessment, to advise parole boards in Britain, to a category A board, which is about the security status that the prisoner 
needs to, to be contained within. So an awful lot of the work is about risk assessments, but they do also provide interventions, but they're uh, typically they're manualised interventions. So they're not trained as therapists, but they will deliver a programme that has to be delivered. You know, these components have to be delivered during this week these components during the next week so formulation was a fairly relatively new concept for forensic psychology whereas for clinical psychology that's been around for like 30 30 years or more but I would say increasingly forensic psychologists train as therapists and clinical psychologists broaden their experience and and gain experience in in uh, richer risk assessment Okay, that's all really interesting. And you mentioned something right there, how maybe initially forensic psychologists were delivering manualized treatments, meaning that the treatments were set out in a very specific way. Week one looks like this, week two looks like this. And then you mentioned another interesting word, formulation, and how clinical psychologists might use formulation. And I'm interested, what is formulation? What does that mean? formulation is like the hypotheses that you might um, develop about why somebody has the current issues that they have in the present and how those problems might have developed and of course actually lots of other disciplines including forensic psychology would have been operating with a degree of um, hypothesizing about what's happened why somebody might be presenting with violence for instance in adulthood but I suppose clinical psychology tends to because of the emphasis on attachment theory tends to look at much further back into the past rather than just looking in the present so for forensic psychologists often they'd be looking at situational factors that had contributed to somebody offending whereas as a clinical psychologist you would tend to also be looking at how the individual developed their capacity to regulate their emotions very early on in life I think the other distinction that can be there as well is I think I mentioned about clinical psychologists really having the the patient or the client at the foreground of their work, whereas I suppose I would see that for forensic psychologists, they're really agents of the state, so they're performing a service in terms of to the prisons that they work in, to the establishment, to the government in terms of making sure that people who are dangerous aren't let out of, of prison. And I think that does give a slightly different nuance to the philosophies that drive the kind of interventions that they deliver. So I'm actually hearing quite a few differences between clinical psychologists and forensic psychologists. And I really am interested in that point that you just brought up, how a clinical psychologist might keep the patient at the foreground, but forensic psychologists tend to be working for the state and they sort of have perhaps society's best interests in mind when deciding whether or not a person should be reintegrated into so- into society or whether they should be in a maximum security versus minimum security prison, those sorts of distinctions. Yeah, and I, ha- I have to say, I do actually think that as a clinical psychologist, you have a responsibility to be out there. You know, if you thought your client was at risk of committing a serious offence, it's actually not in his interest to, or her interest to, to commit that offence either. So you would still be emphasising what risk is being taken. But I guess in the UK, forensic psychologists describe themselves as, a, to some degree, civil servants. 
which is, you know, they're bound by that code of conduct, whereas a clinical psychologist would feel much freer to express views. And although there's a lot of discussion at the moment, rightly so, about things like privilege and how attentive clinical psychology has been to issues like race and class, how open and inclusive it is. But actually, I think clinical psychology tends to be more associated with social justice. Clinical psychologists are more likely to be involved in, say, community psychology work. And that permeates the training of clinical psychologists in a way that I don't believe is there in quite the same way within forensics. So I think within clinical psychology, the philosophy that guides clinical psychologists and their training are much more likely to think about the impact of poverty or racism on how somebody develops as an individual. And something too that you mentioned earlier was something called attachment theory. And I'm guessing that lots of folks reading, or sorry, rather, lots of folks listening to this podcast aren't aware of what attachment theory is. But from my understanding, it's basically how one is treated in early childhood by caregivers, how those relationships formed then influence relationships with others and this person's self-concept and beliefs about others and themselves in the world throughout their life. So how those early relationships kind of inform and influence this person. And it sounds like there's maybe a growing emphasis in this in forensic psychology or, or what do you think? Yes, I, I think that's true. I think kind of like the ACEs movement, you know, the adverse childhood experiences movement has has filtered through into forensic psychology. And there are many people who are wanting to make use of that knowledge and information to make changes in the system. And I have to say, I'm depicting the two groups as really in quite stereotyped ways. And there are there's very many forensic psychologists who've really worked very hard to on their CP continued professional development to make sure that they do understand attachment theory and do understand the impact of trauma and do understand neuroscience. But you know, I'm talking about the kind of like the basic training that people are grown in as a professional group. That's so fascinating. So thank you for clarifying some of the differences and similarities between these two professions. And so now I'd like to hear a little bit more about what it's like working in a prison. Yeah, well that I mean, that's a good question. And I think generally when I'm asked that, people usually follow it up with, aren't you scared working in a prison? And what's really interesting is, yes, at times it is scary, but what's surprising is how rare it is for people who work in prisons to admit to that. So it's like something that people don't like to talk about. I think often that's because they've shut off from the fear. It's a bit like if I asked you, when you are you scared when you cross a road? And people will say, well, no, but the reason you're not scared is because you look left and right. So you've put in place safety behaviours to make sure that you are safe as you cross the road. You wouldn't just step out. And I think something very similar happens in prisons, whereby people think to themselves, well, there's a panic button there, there's an officer here. But actually, it can be frightening working in prison, especially the project that I work on houses the most difficult men in the country. They've all committed very serious violent offences, usually murder or rape. 
and some of them have also um, managed to kill whilst they've been in prison. So obviously if they lose their tempers, they can be very, very frightening. However, I think within prison you see the full range of humanity. So it not infrequently, you know, you end up being really, really moved. So I felt kind of like pride and joy when people have really grow done something that they've not managed to be able to do before in therapy and, you know, see them growing and developing. I've sat in groups with men who our, our treatment is five years long and at the start of treatment the men sit in the group and they're all loners and they don't want to have anything to do with one another and they're like why am I having to sit in a group with these people are really disparaging with one another by year three of treatment in that same group the men are talking about how they feel loved and cared for for the first time in their lives and there's this kind of like real sense of family within the group and this kind of like kindred spirits and the men are supporting each other and they're really rooting for each other and helping them talk about some of the most painful difficult experiences and that's incredibly moving so you know I felt absolutely terrified on occasion but also I've been moved to tears on many occasion and sometimes things are actually really really funny but I think to work in a prison you, you have to be able to cope with a lot of hostility and hatred and maybe because of the nature of the offences in the service that I work in there's a there can be quite a lot of sexualization of that so I've been subject to gossip that I was sacked from my previous job for being a sex worker or for being in porn films oh, and wow. yeah and it's that kind of like there's a maliciousness about that hatred and then also the population can be quite litigious so if they're hacked off with you because they feel upset that you've written a report where you've suggested that they're still risky then they might report you to your professional body in fact in my very first job I got got reported to the British Psychological Society and then in my current one I was reported someone said said that I'd shown my breasts in the session and I was mortified that exactly this person who somebody some anonymous person in this office is going to open this and think who is this bonkers psychologist is she really behaving like this but also I suppose the other thing that's really difficult to manage in a prison is that that hostility that that the client group can be represented by at times can be a bit contagious and sometimes that comes out through the staff group so you can be subject to hostility from staff who don't like the fact that their world is changing. Psychology tends to represent a new way of interacting and being and that can be quite threatening but also on the other ha- other side of that you know I work in a service where there's a really strong sense of community where it's really positive supportive relationships where the prison officers work brilliantly alongside the psychologists with everybody really trying to do the best by the patient group. Dr Naomi Murphy is co-host of Locked Up Living podcast which explores barriers and support to well-being and resilience for those who live and work in locked environments. She is also co-founder of performpsychology.org, who specialize in neuroscience-derived transformational packages that empower individuals to maximize their well-being and optimize their performance across all areas of their life. You can check out the Locked Up Living podcast anywhere you listen to podcasts. From my understanding, you work with folks who have committed some very severe crimes like murder, rape, might have even killed in prison. Are these primarily the types of clients 
that you treat? Yes, the so the service that I work in was when it was set up, it was called the Dangerous and Severe Personality Disorder Project, which kind of says a lot a lot about it. It's obviously a horrible name of the title and that's changed now. But when we did an audit so to get into the project, you have to have you have to be at risk of committing a further violent offence. You have to have already committed a serious violent offence. So with about 35% have committed murder, but another 35% have committed other violence, which would often include manslaughter, which is kind of the victims died, but um, it wasn't intentional. And then another, and then 25% have committed rape and 44% have sex offending within their repertoire of offending behaviour. So you have to have committed a serious a serious offence. You have to be considered to be at risk of re-offence. You have to be considered to be psychopathic. So for a long period, we assessed people on HAIR's psychopathy checklist. And that's a special measure of psychopathy or being it's, a psychopath? It is, in, it is indeed. So yes, it's kind of like the, the one measure. And you have to have no other place where you can go to do treatment within the UK prison system. So sometimes people have already done whatever treatment is available to them and they're still considered to be high risk or they've started treatment but they've been kicked off the programme for being too volatile or impulsive or they're excluded because of their psychopathy score. So we only take people if they've got absolutely nowhere else to go. Most of them, many of the men come out of kind of like long-term segregation or close supervision environments, which are kind of like really small units for men who are very volatile and behave aggressively in prison. So the question that's definitely on my mind is, what exactly is psychopathy? Good question. I mean, it's seen very much as being it's seen very much as being a personality style that's characterised by being cold, callous, being superficially quite charming, thrill-seeking, having being quite grandiose, um, so including elements of kind of like narcissism and, you know, ultimately kind of like exploiting people and being quite parasitic. But I suppose my experience is that rather than it being so much of, of a fixed personality structure is more that it's a state that somebody enters into. So the, I suppose the thing that people like to say is that psychopaths use instrumental violence to achieve something because quite often it's hard to see their motivation for their violence. But I think what I've found quite often is that there's a it's more they feel hurt or slighted and then there's a cold, hard anger that gets enacted. Your answer there just leads me to wonder, how do you connect with someone like one of these folks who've committed a very serious offense? How do you connect with someone who's had such very different life experiences to you? Oh, well, that is such an excellent question. And there's always that joke, isn't there, that psychologists study their area of interest um, and study themselves within that. I'd like to think I'm not a psychopath. Um, I'm not psychopathic. But I suppose that I think the crux of it all is listening to what people say and how they tell their stories. And I was really lucky that I was born into a loving, stable family. But I can imagine how painful it would be to not have had that experience. I think when you listen to the hurt that's and 
imagine walking in the shoes of that person envisaging them as a child I think it's quite easy to see how if I'd had some of the experiences that I've listened to for people I would have grown up pretty angry as an adult and might well have taken it out on chosen to take it out on the world I think one of the experiences that's quite common amongst the men is that sense of not belonging because quite often their poverty that you know their family stood out as being a bit odd um, or disturbed in the street so they were socially marginalized anyway they was often a lot of dysfunction there that might have meant other people shied away they were often in and out of care during child the care of local authorities as children and whilst my experience is nothing like that I did move a lot which does give you that sense of not belonging and having to find a way to to fit in and and for me I could generally make a way to fit in in these new groups where I'd got the wrong accent the wrong version of the school uniform but I think for these people it was you know fitting in was impossible because they were so marginalised and were made to feel so different and had so much shame about things that they had to hide to do with their families it then meant it wasn't possible to be able to fit in. Wow and I think that's so powerful that you're able to take your own life experiences that are of course quite different but sort of find that kernel of connection or that kernel of empathy or truth in both of your stories that can help you maybe become more attuned and more empathetic with this person that you're treating absolutely and I think I do think that's so important it really it really grates on me when you know you sometimes hear people say well I don't have to like somebody to I can just do my job as a professional and get along with them and that's that's fine I don't have to like them you know I do meet people who at times have done you know them well very often have done the most atrocious thing but you have to find something to like about and care in the person and even if those barriers are really really hard I think actually looking at what the barriers to liking the person are is so important in order to be able to address them they need the experience of feeling and believing that they are worthy as a person and if you can't do that as as their therapist then you know you what what you manage to do successfully I would say would be very limited that really reminds me of how psychologists say that the alliance between the client and the therapist is one of the most important ingredients in helping folks get better over time while engaged in therapy. I think that's right, but I wrote um, something quite a while ago about this because I think the therapeutic alliance is really kind of like the cognitive element of a relationship. And I would go further. I say I would say you actually have to genuinely get each other as therapist and um, client. And I don't think that alliance necessarily even captures it. So I think you know you have to genuinely have compassion for the person that you're working with. I think you know it's possible to create a an alliance which is kind of like a a tacit intellectual agreement that you'll work on these particular tasks in therapy but I think actually a good therapist really needs to be able to give a bit more than that. I agree with you there and it's so interesting that we're talking so much about compassion because when I think about compassion the prison setting is not one that comes to mind and institutions often adopt language to emphasize and impose power differences and maintain the status quo and aren't necessarily acting in the spirit of compassion, even in the language that folks use about individuals who have offended. And so I guess I'm just wondering, is this something you notice in prisons? 
Absolutely, it's such a good observation, Bev. So yeah, there's a, a lot of language used in prisons, which really great. So, you know, they talk about, rather than talking about mealtimes, they talk about feeding and they talk about shipping them out when they move them to another prison. And this language is really reminiscent of cattle, of animals. They There was a reluctance to call prisoners by their first name for a very long time. You know, that things have moved on. So now you have to call them Mr. Smith, for instance, or, or, by, or by their first name, you can't just call them Smith. But when I first started working in Whitemore, I remember having a discussion with with a very senior prison officer who would refer to prisoners by their number and he knew even there was one prisoner had a really unusual really unusual first name that you that very rarely encountered in Britain and he insisted on calling the the guy by his number and when we used his first name he'd say I don't know who you're talking about just just to be difficult now thankfully that that has moved on but actually just being able to have your given name makes such a difference and sometimes people with quite fragile identities kind of like play around you know when I worked in hospital the patients used to change their names by depot all the time and and in fact we had we had one patient who changed his name to the same name as the ward manager and then subsequently as therapy went on he then changed his name to Armitage Shanks which is a brand of toilets within the UK so I mean really he was saying you know that reflected an awful lot about his self-esteem the fact that he was using this so it was, it was done kind of in humour but actually what does that say about him that he's referring to himself as a toilet and I think we use the word offend you know the the Ministry of Justice in Britain uses the word offender in their documentation to describe people who've been to prison and already served their sentence now they're still referring to people as offenders post imprisonment then really what they're doing is calcifying that offending part into people's identity rather than allowing them to draw a line under things and work forward and you know that's in documentation that's uh, focused on rehabilitation so it ought to be about creating fresh starts and and enabling people to have a healthier future. Wow okay that's really interesting to me it's almost like we might talk the talk of rehabilitation but even in the way we use language in the way we refer to other people you know we're not really walking the walk of rehabilitation absolutely and I I don't know what it's like in Canada but certainly kind of like in the UK there's a real tendency to want to by the press anyway to want to vilify people in prison you know it's it can be very hard to get conversations going that reflect something more compassionate because if you if you post something on social media that's more compassionate you're likely to have a whole load of people piling about how they deserve to be strung up and bring back the death penalty and all this sorts of sort of stuff and even even within prisons you know the officers that work in the service that I work in where they take a much more supportive listening kind of role they get referred to as care bears disparagingly by the rest of the prison officers I I mean that's diminished over time as I think people realize actually we're working with the most dangerous people in the prison system so the officers can't be that that soft but there's the insinuation is that they're not manly enough they're not doing the job as a tough officer would be doing so we've talked a lot about male offenders And especially off the top of our discussion, we've talked about adverse childhood experiences and early childhood trauma. 
we talked a little bit about attachment. And so basically this idea that these early childhood experiences have influenced us and maybe have influenced one's proclivity to offend. And, you know, like I I mentioned, we've mostly been talking about male offenders, but I guess I'm wondering, are there differences that you see between male and female prisoners? Not you. I mean, I have worked with females as well, but more of my experience has been with men. And I would say that you see the same range in repertoire, behaviours and difficulties in both groups. It's just more about what might be more visible with one group than the other. So I think we're all, certainly within the UK, there's a lot of discussion about the fact that female prisoners have often got a history of trauma, childhood trauma. And yet, we know that our population have so just 67% of our population have been sexually abused and of those of the ones that have been sexually abused over 50% were sexually abused by a woman so usually they've been abused by multiple perpetrators 73% have experienced physical abuse 80% have experienced neglect when I presented this kind of data at conferences I always get asked how do you know they're not lying and I just don't think people would ask that if I was talking about women prisoners I think there's kind of like this reluctance to believe it and you know I've heard lots of mental health professionals say well some men in prison have got these kind of histories rather than accepting that actually it's the norm for people who are in prison and I guess when you look at a population like ours where you're talking about the, the most extreme forms of violence that they've enacted themselves what's quite common is kind of we know that 60 percent of them felt their parents hated them and wanted them dead which is quite different to the experience i think of you know a lot of people in prison that have been quite brutally punished by their parents in response to perceived misdemeanors but to feel that your parent actually really is disgusted by you and just wants to wipe you out I think you know is is even more powerful, and um, I think it says something about the hatred that they then bring into their interactions with others with, within their offending. I think you know that quite often men find it harder to talk about their. Vul- I, th- I think it's hard for anyone to expose their vulnerability, but I think as women, it's more permissible to talk about your vulnerability, and I think the kind of questions that we ask as professionals don't always lend themselves to an honest account of what's happened. So, I mean, my experience is that men would much rather talk about their offending than talk about what happened to them during childhood. That's way more emasculating. And by the time they've come to us, they've often learned a script, a way to talk about what they've done. But actually to talk about what's happened to them is much harder. And we ask quite neutral questions. So rather than asking them, were you ever sexually abused, which would tend to get a no answer to we'd say you know how old were you when when you first had sex and how old was your partner and they would say well I was 10 when I first had sex and my partner was 27 well quite clearly that's that's sexual abuse and with one particular individual within his report it said he was very precocious and began having sex at 10 they would never write that about about a female you know that would there'd be much more thought about what what that meant and I think sometimes it's quite astounding some of the prejudice and bias that you read in reports written by middle class privileged professionals. So, you know, an ordinary working class household was a family where two parents had divorced and both had 
had moved their new partner into the same house and they were all living there in this kind of like three bedroom house. I think they had about six six kids as well as two sets of adults and obviously previously married to one another. Well, that is not an ordinary working class household, but somebody saw fit to describe it as such you know I've, I've seen uh, you know the description lots of lots of times he was raised in a typical afro-caribbean family because his family were really violent as if that's the norm and that's what people from an afro-caribbean background should expect so i think you know those kind of prejudices leak in but i think you know your, your question was about the differences between men and women and i think you know, men do find it harder to reveal their vulnerability. So they tend to mask that with aggression. And so you see much more violence within a male population. And for women, I think, you know, the converse is true, that they find it much harder to be angry. And so then they end up stuck with depression and end up kind of like taking their anger out on themselves by self-harming. But obviously you do see both behaviours within both groups. Wow, that's just so interesting to me that there might be all these differences that really seem to be societally ingrained and they're not just within the offenders or the prisoners themselves, but also within the system that's supposed to be caring for these folks or trying to reintegrate them into society. We see these same biases. Absolutely. We talked a little bit about this off the top, but I am curious just thinking about differences between male and female prisoners I'm curious what has it been like for you as a woman working in a prison where I presume not only are all of the prisoners men but so are most of the the staff yeah absolutely I mean it's it's quite challenging and I think Maybe I felt better equipped to um, deal with that because um, my dad was in the armed forces. So I often lived in environments where there are a lot of men around. So it's not that not not so uncomfortable. But I remember I'd been working at the prison for a few months and I realised that I was wearing trousers to work every day, uh, which I, I wear jeans outside of work, but I rarely wear trousers and normally I wear a lot of dresses ordinarily and I was thinking why am I wearing trousers all the time what's that about and you can see in like civilian staff don't have to wear uniform but what's really really obvious is that quite quickly they gravitate towards wearing black trousers and white shirts white tops and you just think there's something going on there where people are trying to assimilate and fit in and belong not stand out I think as a woman you I mean all staff working within prisons are there's a sense that you're viewed with suspicion by the establishment you're not trusted and I think for civilian staff that's heightened even further because you don't fit in you're not part of you're not one of them and then as a woman the suspicion is heightened even more so there's a lot of suspiciousness that as a woman you'll pose a risk by you're more vulnerable that you you're more likely to be assaulted which I actually don't believe is true although I couldn't quote you any facts on that and that you're at risk of developing a sexual relationship with a prisoner Um, I mean there's obviously they're blind to the idea that there will be there'll be homosexual officers working working in the prison as well so it's like you're you're a risk because you're a woman being subjected to kind of like quite blatant 
blatantly sexist and misogynistic comments. So things like, I came to work to get away from my wife, uh, was one of the things that was said to me when, when we first started there. And then I was working with another man who was convicted of sex offences and his you know, an officer had said to him, how do you talk to Naomi without staring at her breasts? And you're supposed to be role modelling appropriate male conduct. I'd like to think that things are different now because time's moved on a lot. You know, that's 17 years ago. But, you know, you it's an environment that's really characterised by, you know, that sense of um, machismo. And I, I remember sitting in a briefing one time and I had a cap-sleeved T-shirt on, so my arms were... I had bare arms. And I remember sitting there feeling like I was sat there in a bikini or something. It just felt really inappropriately underdressed because you become really conscious. And of course, you know, there does need to be some attention to that. We've got, you know, there's a lot of men kind of like cooped up with very limited exposure to women as visual stimuli within their environment. And, it, you know, it wouldn't be fair to be coming to work in kind of like short, you, you might wear a shorter skirt within the, a community setting or have bare legs, the cap sleeve top wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't matter. But it, it does kind of like really distort what's, what's real or not real. You know, for me, I think it's really important that women are visibly present in the environment. You know, if you've got men who pose a risk to women, there's no point locking them up for 20 years where they don't really see a woman or they only see women who look very like men. I think it's important that the full array of females are, are available and visible within the environment. And then, I, you know, I was pregnant within this you know walking around pregnant within this environment and that evokes some strong feelings of things like jealousy a jealous of my baby that that this was a child that was going to have a good loving mother that they'd not had jealousy someone else having impregnated me uh, but the, the most common response I would say was the sense of privilege that they were trusted to I still carried on doing my sessions and sitting in groups and that was by far and away the biggest reaction was this sense of privilege to be able to see somebody who's quite clearly got a baby grown inside them because normally in prison if a, woman, a female officer becomes pregnant she's not allowed to work on the wings she's not allowed to have contact with the prisoners so there was this sense of gratitude I think that they were being trusted to not pose a risk and that they would uh, manage that dynamic. Wow and that I think is somewhat a model of compassion just right there that's really incredible okay Let's just wrap up the interview. This has been so interesting, Dr. Murphy. And I think I'll have a lot of questions even after our recording today. But one thing I always like to ask folks on the podcast is, what are some common misconceptions about prisoners? I think I've largely touched on these. I suppose, you know, that first one, that it's only ever scary. Prison can actually, I mean, I interviewed Andrew Jefferson recently, who's a prison ethnographer, and he speaks about how boring and mundane an awful lot of prison life is and that is true prison can be really really boring and the lack of lack of stimulation as much as kind of like extremes of stimulation but also that you can that you witness all of humanity in there and that people who have committed the most serious heinous offences are also capable of doing things that are incredibly kind and touching looking out for each other and then also I suppose that notion that all the male staff are straight you know I'd and think how awful it must be to be a a, a gay man working in prison it's fine for prisoners to be homosexual and that doesn't seem to be a thing at all that's that's really well tolerated and accepted 
But for male staff, it's not really acceptable to disclose that you're homosexual. And I think actually coming to work in a prison is already quite stressful. So if you can't, can't actually be your authentic self because you're having to hide part of who you are, I think what you're doing is, you know, what you're left with is a bigger emotional burden than is fair. And yeah, I suppose that's kind of like the main things that I would say. All right. I agree with you that we touched on so many different topics in our short conversation today. It was lovely having you on. Dr. Murphy, thank you so much for spending your time and having this conversation with me. Thank you so much for inviting me on. I've really enjoyed the conversation. And that was today's episode. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast was hosted by Bev Catherine and produced by Yuri Hladio. Podcasting isn't free. Consider supporting the podcast by becoming a patron on patreon.com. You'll get early access to episodes and other exclusive content. You can find us on patreon.com slash stop psychoanalyzing me. Until next time. Music.